But I wonder if you're familiar with the term hagiography. Hagiography. A hagiographer is a writer who records the stories of saints throughout history. In fact, that's what the word means, hagiography. Hagia is saints or believing ones, holy ones, and graphe is writer. Saint writer is officially what that word means. Now, hagiographies are often noted for the pristine way in which they remember the lives of believers, often overlooking their sins and presenting a version of that person's life that has had all the warts photoshopped out of it. In fact, if you were to look back in some of the retellings of particular saints in history, famous brothers and sisters who've done great things, it's not uncommon to read through a few paragraphs to even a, a good portion of a book maybe on a person's life, and it just only talks about the good and doesn't say, well, they were also sinners, and here's some of the bad things. Hagiographies are, of course, very common during the, the time of a eulogy at a funeral. If you've ever been at a funeral where uh, there's a lot of angst because the person who has died is, is somebody who uh, the others around are not thinking very positive thoughts about that person. And yet, in the eulogy is when we often only recognize the good. We don't talk about the bad. That's very a typical time you might have heard hagiography. Well, you need to know that while the Bible does in fact record the lifetimes of many holy ones, many saints, the Bible is nothing like a list of hagiographies. The Bible unapologetically records the most embarrassing and shameful failings of even the most beloved heroes of the faith. The Bible is no stranger than to real, unvarnished records of faulty men. In fact, those unvarnished parts are the critical parts of the record so often for us to understand the need for a savior, the need for a better hero than all of those people that we read about. Now, you may know that some critics of God's word today have charged that the gospel account and the multiple accounts of Jesus in the Bible are essentially hagiographies. They're just retellings of the life of a, albeit beloved rabbi, perhaps, but they've just removed all the blemishes. The Christians who recorded the events of this Jesus guy just don't tell us about all of his faults, and they kind of exaggerate his positives. But when you read these accounts, it becomes crystal clear that the authors are not merely overlooking some of the faults in Jesus' character, but that these gospel writers are straining at the limits of human language to describe just how perfect, holy, and divine Jesus is. John, one who bears the name of the gospel that we are reading through and just started last week, was a personal friend of Jesus. He knew Jesus. He knew the smell of his breath and the, the, the appearance of his gait, his walk, that he could pick him out from a distance. Oh, that's, that's Jesus over there. He knew how he spoke and the way that he taught, and he watched his life, and he lived with them. He probably knew his favorite foods and many of his preferences as a human. Jesus was not a mere painting or statue to him. Jesus was not just a character in a stained glass window. Yet this John, 
personal friend of Jesus Christ, employs some of the most incredible and brilliant language available to him in his day to explain who Jesus really is. Reading through the intro to the gospel according to John is like wading into a glacial lake where even if you only wanted to dip a toe in to cool off, the bank is so steep that in a single step you find yourself up over your eyeballs in frigid water. Last week we covered a bit of introductory material and then verses 1 and 2. And I said then, and I'll repeat it again, we barely scratched the surface on this stuff. There are, there are volumes devoted to this prologue of John that are more than you and I could read in a lifetime. But those first two verses told us who Jesus is. John tells us with amazing, brilliant, beautiful language who Jesus is. And in the next verse that we're going to cover today, verse 3, John tells us what Jesus does. If you have your Bibles, I'd uh, invite you back to John chapter 1. I'm going to read through the prologue. I'll just read through those 18 verses because that's the section that's being, uh, being written right now, what we're reading. I'm going to show you the whole flow of it just in a quick reading. I'll pray and then go back to verses 1 through 3, and we'll spend the majority of our time in 3. You can follow along if you have your Bible with you. If not, just listen along, and the few verses we'll be covering today uh, we'll put up on the screen. Starting in John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let's pray. Lord, as we pick apart the parts of this verse, let it not just be a sterile act, let it be an act of worship. Help us to understand, to apply, and help us to love you and your word more because of our time here today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to go back with me to verse 1 and 2. I'm just going to quickly restate what we covered last week, uh, give a quick commentary on that, and we'll spend our time in verse 3. Look at verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John Frame, scholar, author, a Christian writer, notes 
that the other systems of religion have both absolutes and personal gods. You can find this in other religions in the world. But their absolutes are not personal, and their personal gods are not absolute. Only the God of the Bible is both absolute and personal. Think with me, if you will, about the Greek pantheon, the nature of the Greek gods. You might have some of the names in your mind of some of the Greek gods. You you might remember the the chief-named god, Zeus, Greek name. The Roman name was Jupiter for for that that god. And there was a pantheon. There was a whole bunch of gods, a variety of gods. And if you remember any of those stories, reading through any of those, studying those in any any of your past, you might remember that those gods are very limited. They are not absolute. They're constantly dealing with and fighting with and arguing with creation, uh, the the other other elements of this world, they're battling things out together because they are not absolute. No one God is, no collection of gods is absolute, even when personal. This is the way the Greeks might have thought about their gods. The Greeks rejected the idea of an absolute and personal God. Instead, they held chance or fate as the great controlling force behind the universe. They did, though, acknowledge a supreme principle, a supreme force that undergirds everything in the universe, that chance, that fate. They knew that there were universal laws, there were universal realities that could not be ignored. Realities higher than Zeus, higher than all the pantheon, higher than the collection of their gods. They called the universal supreme reality the logos, That's Greek for the word. We spent a lot of time on that last week. And this is why John uses this language right here at the beginning of his book. Because it would draw to mind for the Greek something absolute, something supreme, something irrevocable and invariable. The chief defining reality of the universe. Last week I also showed you that John will go on in this chapter to make it exceptionally clear that the Word is Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh and dwelt among you, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son of the Father. That's Jesus. The Word, Logos, is Jesus. He is saying, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. He was in the beginning with God. This is mind-blowing, what he is saying. A.W. Tozer, another Christian scholar, I've loved his works on the nature of God and his holy attributes, all of his attributes. He says this, he says, Do not try to imagine God, or you will have an imaginary God. Listen to that again. Do not try to imagine God, or you will have an imaginary God. I think it's a great line. I think it's right because I think this is what the Greek thinkers did, the Greek philosophers. And the warning here is to not just sit in a room somewhere and meditate and ponder. Until those musings form an image of God in your mind. Okay, it makes sense to me that God would be, he would be this. No, do not trust your own mind like that. We must let God tell us about himself We are to trust his written testimony of himself. 
In other words, any God short of the God revealed in Scripture is an imaginary God. It comes from somewhere else. We want God to tell us who He is, God to reveal who He is. It is, it is wonderful. If you were like, well, should we not meditate or ponder? Definitely do that. It is wonderful to think about God, to dwell, about, dwell on God, but we must not think about what is untrue about Him. We must think of him in a way that he reveals himself to his, to, to his word, that he tells us about himself. So don't imagine God. Read what he says about himself and think about that. Parents, this might be a helpful thing for you to consider. If you have little kids, you know little kids love asking questions. They can ask a million questions. And if you're teaching them about God, they will inevitably ask you a million questions about God. I'm not sure that that's an exaggeration. A million questions. How big is God? Where is God? Can we see God? What's his favorite color? What's his favorite food? Will we see him in heaven? How big will he be then? Will he tell us what to do? Listen, the kids will ask a million questions about God. It's wonderful that they do this. But parents, every time that your kids ask you a question about God, the next thing that should come out of your mouth is... Well, the Bible says, okay, the next time your kids ask you a question about God, the first thing you say is, well, God says, well, he tells us, well, according to his word, God is and God does. You see? So it's never just, you know, I like to think about God as, no, no, stop right there, pause right there, because we want to disciple our children into finding out who God is from what he says, not what we imagine. Are you getting the principle here? That we do not look for an imaginary God, an image made by our own minds, by what, what he says about himself. This last week, I was uh, impressed upon again with Matthew 16. This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Jesus is with his disciples, and he says, hey, what do the people say about me? Who do they say that I am? And the disciples are like, well, some think you're uh, a prophet, some, some think that you're, uh, you're uh, Elijah, some th-. they're giving these answers of what they've heard in the crowds, and Jesus goes, okay, what do you say? Who do you think that I am? He asks his closest disciples, and, and, and uh, Peter speaks up, and he speaks up and he says, uh, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Do you remember what Jesus responded to that? I'll read his words in Matthew 16, 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, this is especially remarkable because Peter has already experienced a plethora of miracles. One chapter before, even one paragraph before, Jesus broke bread and fish and fed 4,000. A few chapters before that, he broke bread and, and fed 5,000 in this miraculous uh, public miracle. Uh, in chapter 15, Jesus heals everyone who comes to him, it says. People from all over the place. He's raising people from the dead, restoring sight, helping lame people get up and dance. It's awesome all he's doing, and Peter's watching all this happen. He's seen all those authenticating miracles of Jesus, and Jesus doesn't go, this is how you know, because you see what I do, you hear how I speak. That isn't it. Blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, that's how you know, because God put that in you. 
All those miracles, all those wonderful sights that he had observed were insufficient in providing saving faith for Peter. God himself had to reveal that to him, and it's what he does in his word. These first two lines are God revealing to us through John the Apostle who Jesus is. And the next verse tells us what Jesus does. So follow with me into verse 3. This is the, the verse we'll spend the majority of our time on today. Verse 3. All things were made through him, through the word. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. All things were made through Jesus. All things. You know, it's really cool to, to study the Greek on this sometimes because you, you probably know that other languages oftentimes have emphases and a little bit of uh, uh, information in their language that doesn't always translate perfectly. And so all things here, that, that's a great way to say it, all things. But there is a way in Greek to say all things in a summary sense, okay? All things kind of like the summary of stuff. So just the pile of things that exist were made through him. That's not the language that's used here. It's actually the language that's referring to every individual thing. It's cool. John used that language intentionally. Every individual thing, all of those individual things in creation were made through him. That, that's, that's the language he's using. All things. The, the English way that might have used the other way, we could say everything was made by Jesus, which might sound like a big conglomeration of stuff or all things, and that's, that's the, I think it's better to say it this way, all the stuff, every individual atom of the universe is attributed to the creation of Christ, his creative work. In case there was any misunderstanding about what was being said in the first two verses, here John unequivocally declares that the word, Jesus, was not made, but is the maker the Word not only pre-existed creation, but brought creation into existence. You know, if you were to read through the gospel accounts, uh, the others, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, especially uh, Matthew and Luke, Mark just kind of hits the ground running. He's like, all right, all right, about Jesus. Jesus' baptism, and then goes. There's, there's nothing about his birth or anything there. But Matthew and Luke both spend significant time uh, telling us of the events of Jesus' birth and the events leading up to his birth. That's where we get our Christmas narratives from. That's where we get the nativity scenes from. That's where we get the wise men and the angels singing hallelujah to the shepherds. That, that, that's where we get that, right? We, we get all that language from Matthew and Luke. Why? Because those two authors began their gospel accounts with Jesus' humanity. So, so, so when asked, so to speak, kind of in a rhetorical way by the audience, the, those who are going to be receiving the Gospels, according to Matthew and, and Luke, when they're writing them down, they're like, okay, these people want to know about Jesus, let's go back to his birth. Here's how the birth happened, and they go back there. Maybe tell a little bit of the chronology, the, the genealogy, people who came before Jesus, but this, this is where we see him working into history. That's great, because it does emphasize his humanity, but... We notice here in John's account that rather than beginning with Jesus' humanity, he instead firmly establishes Jesus' divinity, that Jesus is God. 
And how does he do this? By going back to the beginning of all things. Do you have that, uh, that relative that if you ask, ask them to tell you, uh, tell you a story about something? I, I have a relative like this who, if I ask her, hey, uh, how did that one event happen when I was like 13? Well, it actually goes back to your great-great-grandpa Jones. If you go all the way back there, back, this is what, you know, they kind of do that. You're like, oh, man, okay, no, I, I just wanted to know this. John sees the importance here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to begin the account of this Christ by going back to the beginning of all things. Let me tell you about Jesus, boys and girls. In the beginning of the universe. <laughs> it's awesome. He wants to make sure we get this in mind before we go anywhere. Now, because that's where he's going, I want to take a brief excursus for a moment to build on the language he's using here, to try to get us in the same frame of mind as the earliest Jewish readers, okay? And those who were familiar with the Jewish, Jewish readings, the Jewish writings of creation. Because a Jew would have picked this up, even a Greek would have known, okay, so this is that Jewish guy, Jesus, they would have known of the created account of how all things came into existence. The Bible does not equivocate on the issue of origins, origins, where everything came from, the beginning of the universe. In fact, if you were to go back to Genesis 1, which we did last week because the same words are used in John, in the beginning was the word. Well, if you go back to the first verse in the Bible in Genesis 1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And for the record, to an ancient, that's everything up and everything down. That's all, all of it. And the subsequent chapters in Genesis pick apart every single part of creation, every category, so nothing's missing. God made the entirety of the creation by speaking into the void. Let there be light. He made the entirety of the created order out of nothing. And this is important just to not only know as believers, but to remember that's a little bit of what's in the background for this writing we're reading here. Out of nothing, ex nihilo. God did not need to draw upon some cosmic storehouse of pre-existent matter, like a guy sifting through lumber at Home Depot before a project, right? God did not have to go first find resources to use to build the universe. No. He spoke something into existence. And all things came into being. Now, I know that there are opposing views on this in the world around us. And I also know that there are opposing views in the church. There are actually varying views where Christians go, well, I'm pretty sure this is what we should be taking from the beginning of the Bible. I think this is how things came to be. Okay? But one thing that all Christians absolutely must agree upon, must agree upon, is that nothing precedes God. Nothing precedes God. Nothing existed before him. Nothing gave him life. Nothing established the conditions necessary for him to come into existence. He always was. Nothing is higher in the order of existence than God. Either on a timeline or philosophically, nothing precedes God. And just to show you my cards here, I'm what you would call a six-day creationist. 
In other words, I kind of take a very just traditional view of the beginning of the universe. I think that there was nothing except for God. He spoke into existence all things, and it took six days, six cycles, six periods for God to create everything that exists. And I, just, I assume that it's just like that. Morning and evening, it was essentially 24-hour periods of time, seventh day he rested. I just, that's the way that I think it's the most likely of what we're supposed to take from the text of sacred scripture. I'm not pedantic about it. I don't judge other believers who hold differing views. You're just wrong, and I hope you change. Um, but seriously, you, if you've been here and heard lots of sermons, we don't talk about this a ton because not, there's not a lot of passages we've covered yet that have brought us to that point. And more to the point, even when I talk with atheists, people who flatly reject God, they go, oh, you're those Christians who believe that God made what, a few thousand years old. That's really what you believe? I go, yeah, I do believe that. But let me ask you, are you going to die? Yeah. Okay. Well, what are you going to do when you stand before a holy God as, a, as an imperfect sinner? You see, I get there real quick. I don't usually fight the fight over a I, I don't really care about, okay. Here you are, and you're going to die. What then? This is the way I think about it. I hope this is helpful to other people as well. I have no reason to doubt the biblical record. In fact, the more that I read and study the Bible, the more I trust it. But I have a million reasons to doubt the current unbelieving scientific consensus and a growing number of reasons to doubt that, okay? And so that's where, that's where I am with it. I'm not judging those who disagree with me on that. I'm just telling you that's where it is. You need to know that there is still broad consensus, even in the unbelieving scientific community, of what would be called the initial singularity. This is, this is what uh, is kind of colloquial talked about as the, the Big Bang. There was a point at which things came into existence. Time, matter, space. It's usually a time, matter, space. Why? Because those things, those things have to exist concurrently. Matter cannot exist without space. Where would you put it? Space cannot exist without time. When would it exist? And so, this is still the consensus. There's, a, there's, there's all these mathematicians working their fingers to the bone to try to find another godless origin theory because they don't have one. But there was a point at which time, space, matter came into existence, and this entirely agrees with what the Bible says. God spoke. Boom, all came into existence, which means that whatever caused time, space, and matter to begin to come into existence must be timeless, spaceless, immaterial. And that's our creator God. He's the only thing in existence that is outside of creation. The Bible repeatedly sings this same truth over and over. In fact, a significant number of the Psalms continue to refer to God, the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. It's like a name for God in the Psalms, constantly being sung. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. Psalm 89, 11 says, The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all that is in it, you have founded them. Psalm 148.5, which is what we read, we read that psalm together as we started worship this morning, says, let all creation praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. There was no ambiguity for believers in the days of Jesus or before, and not because errors did not exist, but because the word of God was so definitive and clear. John is drawing upon what faithful believers had known for centuries and still know millennia later. And he says about that creation that Jesus 
did it. Yesterday I was sharing with some guys at the men's breakfast uh, about John. Uh, for those who missed it, it was a wonderful time. Guys together in the lobby out there just having some breakfast together, and it was awesome. Spending some time with a few of the brothers around one table, and uh, we were just chatting about John and the excitement about reading through and studying through that. And I, I just quickly made the note I hadn't said previously. Uh, a lot of scholars think that John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, what we call the prologue, what I read through earlier today, might have been an original Christian hymn sung, because it sounds very poetic, not only the language, but the way that it repeats certain parts in the positive and the negative, and there's kind of a symmetry there. Wow, this may have been like, like a song that Christians sang to remind them of these beautiful truths, these beautiful realities. And that may or may not be the case. I, I, there's no way to really know, quite honestly. But even if it is the case, we ought not think that John was just gushing that he was just imprecise, maybe even errant a little bit because of his exaggeration of the greatness of Jesus. No, John is not alone in this audacious claim about Jesus. The rest of the New Testament continues this language that Jesus, this sinless, miracle-working, authority-bearing preacher of righteousness who died on the cross and rose again three days later was, in fact, the creator of the universe. I just want to show you a few of these right now that are exactly the same as what John is saying here. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 8. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, invisible, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Hebrews 1.2 But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. In Romans 11, 36, for from him him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Wow. This stuff is all over the New Testament. John didn't just get a little bit bit hoppy. Wow. John, settle down, man. I know you love this Jesus, but my goodness, come on dial it down a notch. No, he's saying practical, real, actual truths that he was willing to give his life for. You might have noticed in these four verses that I quickly pulled up to include John 1, 3, right here, you might have noticed a preposition being used that was the same in all of them. Did you see it? Through him. All things were made through him. I just read that four different times. Fifth time is here. We'll see it again in John chapter 1. In verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So that's the language we have in the Bible all over. That the universe created was created through Jesus. How did, well, what do we make of that? I want to look back at Matthew Henry, wrote a commentary on this exact thought. I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit because of the language differences in time. He said this, through him, not as a subordinate instrument, but as a coordinate agent, God made the world. Not, and here's his illustration, not as the workman cuts by his axe, but as the body sees through the eye. 
I had to read that a bunch of times to try to get to the bottom of what he was saying. So let me explain it. He's, he's saying God didn't use Jesus as an other. The Father did not employ Jesus as another, as an extension. Like, well, I'll pick you up like an axe and use you as a tool through which I'll build the world, chop the tree, right? No, as though the axe was separate from the swinger of the axe. That's, that's the wrong way to think of it. Instead, it is, it, is, it is as the way that we see through the eye. So if I were to ask you this question, it may clarify. Do you see things or does your eye see things? The answer is, well, yeah. Yes, I see things. And yes, my eye, I see things. Yes, me and my eye see things. Well, how do you see things? I see things through my eyes, right? And that's the idea. That's the, it's the imperfect but trying to be helpful illustration given there about what's meant by through. The Father did not create the universe in any way apart from his Son. And Jesus, the Son, did not create the universe in any way apart from his Father. Father, Son, and Spirit created all things in a single inseparable act. This is the conclusion of Scripture's speech on creation. Father, Son, and here it's Father and Son, of course, are what's being referenced. Father, Son, and Spirit throughout the entirety of the Bible created all things in a single inseparable act. To draw on another ancient brother, I'll draw on John Calvin. He said this, acknowledging the challenge of a statement like this. Whoa, mind-blowing. He said this, we ought to be satisfied with this inspired declaration, well knowing that it conveys far more than our mind is able to comprehend. If you ever read any of the works of John Calvin, that brother, even if you disagree, that brother was brilliant. For him to go, I don't understand that. That's significant. In fact, this single sentence not only makes such clear declarations, but also contains its own guardrails, guardrails to keep us from error. It's really awesome how the Bible is written. So many times when we're, when we're considering errors that we could try to imagine in our mind about God, nature of God, nature of Christ, of sin, redemption, we have, we have a little bit of an error. Sometimes there's not a verse that explicitly states against the error. Sometimes the verses are written in such a way that the error couldn't be true at the same time the verse is true. And that's exactly what we see here. He says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Without him, not anything made that was made. John could have concluded the entirety of that sentence after all things were made through him. He could have just stopped. In fact, arguably, the rest of that sentence is a repeating. It's a, it's a, it's a symmetrical, negative version of the positive saying the same thing. All things were made through him. It's a bit redundant, John. And without him was not anything made that was made. Well, here's one of the reasons I think that that was here. Because it's reminding us of what I just said. Not only were the members of the Godhead all present for and active in creation, but the act of creation was a single, inseparable, Trinitarian act. In other words, by way of illustration, if you and I were to commit to a project... We're going, to do, we're going to do a big, big job together. Inevitably, we would split up, divide, and conquer. 
in some way or another. We divvy up responsibilities. We, we'd, be, we'd be working towards the same objective, but engaged in different tasks. Even if we carried the same lumber, I'm on this end of it, you're on that end of it. You see, we're both bringing our pieces, our, our strengths, our abilities too, and we're sharing those in order to accomplish the goal, okay? We'd be doing separate things towards the same goal. And we might go, we built that house together. Great. But that's not how the Bible tells us that God and the members of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, engaged in that act. It is not as though Father, Son, and Spirit took turns creating different elements of the universe. All right, Son, all right, Spirit, I'm going to create uh, the cosmos. Boom, look at that. Isn't that awesome? Wow, that's really cool. My turn, my turn, my turn. Okay, uh, now, 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 now uh, 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 waters. Whoa, isn't that cool? Okay, my turn. No, that's, 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 not, that's not the view, right? It's not the way this is happening. All things were made through the word, through Christ, through Jesus. And without him was not anything made that was made. Have you ever painted a room in your house with a family member? Maybe your wife? The work doesn't stop when one walks out, right? So, so my, wife, my wife goes out to, to grab another paint can opener or something like that. I keep going. She walks back in and sees a little bit of progress. Oh, good job. It looks wonderful. It's the way it works in, 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 our, in our realm, Okay. That's not how the created act worked. Father, Son, and Spirit were inseparably a part of every single element of creation. Now, you might be going, man, first of all, this is like a head scratcher. You might be doing that, admittedly. And you might also be kind of going, why does this matter? Like, I get it, Rich. Again, you're saying the Trinity created everything. I see the Father, Son at least being mentioned here. All right, okay. Um, why is that so important to see? Here's why. Because the enemy knows that if he can give us a distorted view of God, he can give us a distorted view of anything. If he can get us to think about God wrong, he can get us to think about everything wrong. If our great enemy can sell us a version of God that is just a little less majestic, just, just, a, just a little, not, not a lot, baby steps, baby steps here, little increments, if he can get us to, to embrace a version of God that is just a little bit less mysterious, a little less awe-inspiring, maybe even embrace a version of God that is just a little more understandable, a little more merely human, then it is only a matter of time before his favorite lie will work on us. You know you too can be God. And so, we have a tendency to take big doctrinal statements like this in the Bible and bring them down to a level where we can pick them apart. And I, th I think it's great to investigate and, and mine it out. And Lord, show us what's going on here. But we ought to always be careful to not do harm to what the text actually says, actually declares. It's, it's actually incredible how clearly this stuff is written. How many guardrails are here to ward us off from error. The only way you make this into something else is if you undermine the words. Well, that word doesn't mean that, or that word shouldn't be in there. We should just change. Nope. Those words are there for a reason. They mean something. Nothing in all creation was made apart from Jesus. 
The next line says, uh, was not, and without him was not anything made. Was not anything made that was made. There is no exception whatsoever to those things that Christ made. No exception. There's not like he made everything. Well, there's a couple things, but they're little. They're not a big deal. You don't really notice them that often. No, every single thing. In fact, yet again, Greek is helpful here because the Greek grammar for the term not anything made there's, there's a way to show emphasis in that and a way to show less emphasis in that. And the Greek terms used was the, was the greater emphasis, udehen. It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the more uh, superlative. It's, it's the bigger way of emphasizing. And you could say it this way in English even. Not even one single thing. You could say it that way. And without him was not even one single thing made that was made. That's what I meant before about John is using all of the tools of language at his disposal to make his case. Jesus created the earth. Jesus created Adam and Eve and the garden. Jesus created the angels. Jesus created Satan. Jesus created heaven. And Jesus created hell. Nothing in creation has ever come into existence apart from Christ. Everything in creation that exists is attributed to him. All of it. And this is the starting point when we try to share a gospel with people and explain, if you're not a believer today, you need to know this. You are a creature made by Christ. You know that cross we put on everything? You know the way we talk about this Savior we want everybody to know? This is what we're talking about. He's not just this really great guy we want you to know. No, this is the creator of the universe. Why should you submit to him? He made you. You belong to him. And not only did he create you and every blade of grass and every amoeba and every single-celled organism to the blue whale, every single thing that he made is under his authority and he gave us a code to live by. He placed it in our hearts to do right and not wrong and we have sinned. Every one of us to a man. Every one of us has sinned against him. And he said that we deserve his just wrath, separation from God, and death, hell. That's what we deserve and it is only because this creator stepped into what he created. God became man that he could bear the sins of the world. God in his good and perfect love and grace for all humanity provides his son to live the perfect life that we should have lived. And he goes to the cross to bear the penalty for sins we should have borne. And the way that we can have that great exchange, because he earned and deserved heaven, eternity, perfection with God, and we deserve hell, separation, death. He took the death, and he offers us the life. And the way that we get that is by belief in him. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And his righteousness is attributed to you, and your sin debt is attributed to him, and he's paid it off in full. That's how you get it. Believe in him. It's the only way. We want for you to repent of your sins and turn in faith to Christ, the creator of the universe. Remember how I said that this verse contains its own guardrails? There's, there's even more here. Not anything made, that was made. I've heard people ask the question before, well, if God made everything, who made God? Some have even worded it this way. Um, well, did God make himself? No, he did not make himself. He did not make himself. Why? Because he's not made. See how, see how awesome the language is here? 
He couldn't have stopped. Without him, not anything in create, not anything in existence. For the record, you may have noticed I've been using this language here, and I've been very careful. I, I hope I didn't slip. I've been very careful when I've written and what I've said to never say that Christ created everything that, or made everything that exists. I didn't say that. He made everything that exists in creation. Because there is one thing that exists outside of creation, the creator. Last week I explained and showed you that all that exists can be divided into two camps. Creator, creation. Creator, creation. And it's not this way, left and right, it's top and bottom. It's creator, creation. He is altogether different than his creation. He is timeless, spaceless, immaterial. You and I are in time, made of material, and we exist in space. And the fact that he loves us as his creatures is amazing. The care that he has for us to enter into this wicked world and to bear death is unfathomable. There is nothing in all of creation that does not trace its origin to Christ. And we see that clarity yet again at the end of this verse. Now here I want to just conclude by saying this, why this matters. Here's why this matters. Rich, man, this is theology stuff. Like, goodness, this is like deep things. You could write books on this. You could challenge a million questions and try to figure everything out. Yes, yes, yeah, you could. And people have and will until Jesus returns. It'll continue on. But here's something I need for you to hear and know this. Because when we see these things, sometimes they scare people. Like, oh, that's just too big. Ah, forget it. Bad theology, bad theology is often nothing more than intellectual laziness. Bad theology is often nothing more than intellectual laziness. It is far easier to disbelieve the Trinity or to think wrongly about it. Well, let me just switch some things around in my thinking. There we go. That's a God that I can understand. This one, the one that I imaged, the one that I imagined here. That makes sense to me. Good, I got it. That is far simpler, far easier than to submit to the teachings of the Word Bad theology is often more intellectual laziness than not. It is, it is a critical act that we do the work of studying and internalizing the teaching of the Bible and embracing it. Yes, study it out. Yes, bear it out. Yes, debate it. Yes, scrutinize it. Yes, comb through the languages and the details of it and what this word would have meant. And we'll look elsewhere in John. Look elsewhere in the New Testament. Look elsewhere in the entirety of the Bible. Do it all. But at the end of the day, we must do, just like it says in 1 Timothy 3, we must hold the mysteries of the faith with a clear conscience. Jesus entered into the world that he created. More on that in a few weeks. And this means that if you take joy in anything in life at all, remember that that thing was created by Jesus. I want to leave you with this thought in your mind as we, we close. Uh, my kids ask questions about God all the time, but they also ask lots of questions about heaven. You kids ever had, you ever had this before? Tons of great questions about heaven. And they'll oftentimes get a question. Uh, Daddy, will there be Frisbee in heaven? You know, that, that kind of question. I've, I've talked about that here before, and from the pulpit before, but here's what he know. I know that God created everything in this world. I know he's responsible for every good and perfect gift. It says in James 1.17. And the very same creator that gave you those good things you like now will give you the eternity and the good things there. So I don't know if there will be Frisbee, but whatever that's replaced by will be a better version. If it's not that, you, we won't be there and go, oh, heaven's so great, except for Frisbee. You know, we, that, that, won't be, that won't be the way. 
And so this means that what we have to look forward to, what we have to, to live for, what we have to, to look into eternity for, is a kind of joy that can be experienced because Christ, who created those little joys now that we can experience and be acknowledging, oh, there are goods today, will bring those things into fullness in eternity. The same creator Christ that gave us those good gifts now will maximize those good gifts in eternity for all who believes. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and your word. We're grateful for the truth and we're grateful for the Bible you've given to us that explains these things and we ask that you would help us to understand them, to internalize them. Uh, Lord, uh, we know we, we couldn't even begin to understand the mysteries, the things that cannot be known about God, but Lord, we do ask that you would help us to take great joy in the pursuit of understanding these things. Help us to, help us to enjoy the, the time we invest in our small groups and Bible studies and our personal quiet times, meditating not on our imaginations, but on the words of Holy Scripture that tell us about you, that tell us about your perfect Son, that tell us about your Holy Spirit. We love you and ask these things in Jesus' good and holy name we pray. Amen.